Welcome to Fundamentals of Canadian Law. I'm Matt Shepard, and I've seen a lot of headlines about the Trans Mountain Pipeline being affected by a Court of Appeal decision and the duty to consult. This is something we covered with Professor Hugo Chaquette in an earlier episode in the podcast. But now that this decision's been released, we're sitting down with both Hugo, the developer and instructor of our Aboriginal Law course, and Sherry Metcalf, the developer and instructor of our Constitutional Law Module in Law 201-701, Introduction to Canadian Law. Sherry and Hugo talk about the decision itself, it's huge, and the duty to consult, which has been taking up the headlines. But there are other aspects to the decision too, and we take some time to unpack what the federal government's next move might be. This podcast is brought to you by the Queen's Certificate in Law, the only online certificate in law offered by a law faculty in Canada. You can find out more at takelaw.ca. So I think a good place to start is the length of the decision. Uh, so the, the caveat is it's the beginning of the school year. Everyone's teaching. <laughs> classes are starting. We're all busy. And this is a huge slab of decision, right? It certainly is, yeah. Yes, it's definitely... Uh extremely long, thorough, and complex review. It's so a lot to process. have a very complex process, though, too, which is, mm-hmm. you know, needs to be said as well. So so what, what factors kind of govern length? Like, what would go, what makes this a particularly complex review? Uh, one of the things I think that makes it complex is that it involves consolidating a number of different challenges to the decisions um, from different parties. So there were uh, cities involved, so Vancouver and Burnaby. There were a number of different First Nations involved who had territory affected in different parts of the project area. There was an NGO involved. So that already, sort of having multiple different kinds of challenges is going to increase the complexity. Yeah, and there was, the case was also sort of a two-part case where, you know, there was a challenge to uh, or an attempt to get judicial review of the, the board's report, the National Energy Board's uh, initial report, also a uh, challenge to the decision itself by the by cabinet to approve uh, the pipeline. Uh, and then, uh, as Sherry mentioned, there was a number of, of um, challenges on the basis of uh, failure of the duty to consult, which were brought by several different First Nations and, and, and uh, organizations, so that there was a whole complexity to it. Um, and um, so, you know, it, obviously, there's also a lot of factors to consider. It's a very technical uh, thing, you know, to build a pipeline. There's a lot of uh, moving parts. There's a lot of pieces to the puzzle, if you will. So I think just that fact alone and then the length of the process and the complexity of it makes it for a complex decision. I suppose we should actually backtrack to the decision itself. Because, I mean, right. I'm someone, I've just seen headlines. And the headlines are basically failure of duty to consult. And this derails everything. Uh, is kind of the Coles notes of what I've seen in headlines and, and on television and so on. Is that a fair summary of what the decision was? Well, I'll say on the duty to consult part, um, it, it it certainly was. Um, uh, it, it's a it's a meaningful decision. It's a it's a strong decision in favor of the of uh, the indigenous groups' right to be consulted meaningfully. Um, you know, whether that decision has wings is quite yet to be seen because we don't know right what the end of the story is yet, quite yet. Um, but, you know, it certainly is a significant decision. I'm not sure that it warranted the level of um, dismay and, and uh, sort of uh, hand that that it, it created uh, among proponents of the pipeline. 
Why? Well, because I think there, there's a path that the government can take to remedy, the federal government can take to remedy its lack of consultation. Um, and I think if you actually look at past court decisions, um, you know, while this is a meaningful sort of uh, uh, validation of the right to meaningful consultation, the court was also very clear that that is not the same as having a right to veto uh, or even a right to, you know, um, to have full agreement, right? So, the, so it's still not... You know, this is still not free prior and informed consent uh, uh, as a standard. So, you know, I, I don't think it's that it's it's fatal, uh, although it certainly is a, a major decision and it is a block to to the pipeline happening now, obviously. Yeah, I think I agree with what Hugo's saying. The other thing that I think is important to recognize is that while there were flaws identified in the consultation process by the reviewing court here, they actually uh, said that some of the things that were done were actually done properly and were improvements on prior processes of consultation that had been found wanting. So, you know, in general, they thought that there were things done properly, like early notification and engagement. And so it was really sort of at a later stage of consultation where cabinet was supposed to be sort of considering um, additional information and impacts and then having meaningful dialogue about that with the indigenous uh, groups who were involved that they fell down on the job in terms of their uh, consultation obligations. Right. Yeah, I think that was one of the sources of frustration from for the federal government was that this was actually probably the best, uh, one of the best processes that they have used so far. I mean, if you look at some of the passages like the Clyde River decision, uh, or even the Gitkala decision, which was another uh, federal court of appeal decision, the process used there was not at all um, as developed and as um, robust as the process they used here. Um, and, you know, over the whole course of this very long, complex process, it's really only the final phase of the negotiation that the court found found a difficult, found wasn't adequate. Um, the rest was was actually you know quite well done. So, so this isn't as you were saying before. This isn't actually catastrophic. There's a failure of a duty consult, and the way to remedy to that, I guess, is consult. Is that sort of the way forward? Yeah, I think the court has sort of said what it thinks needs to happen, which is that there needs to be meaningful. Um, dialogue, um, as Jerry said, rather than, um, you know, the, the three main objections the court had to what the federal government did in that final phase of negotiations was that, number one, um, the, the, the Crown representatives basically acted as note takers. So they basically just sat there recording what the concerns were. They had no authority or power or, you know, seemingly any desire to address those concerns, to do anything to, to meet um, those concerns. The second thing is that and this goes back to a discussion we had about the delegation of the duty to consult. Um, the you know the past decisions uh, in Chippewas of the Thames, for example, said that well, it's perfectly fine for the Crown to rely on a, pro- on a regulatory process to fulfill the duty. If it does so, it has to ensure that that process is provides meaningful opportunities to engage and accommodate the interests of of the Indigenous groups. Um, and here, what happened was the federal government kind of during the regulatory process, so during the National Energy Board hearings, kept saying, well, you know, this is sort of a preliminary uh, hearing. We're going to consult some more. Uh, Don't worry, uh, Indigenous groups, we're going to consult some more after this process is over. Then once the process was over, they sort of of adopted the stance that they couldn't impose extra conditions on Mm -hmm. the the, the constructor on Trans Mountain, and that they they weren't really at, at liberty to change or vary anything in the report. So it was sort of, you know, they can't have it both ways. Either, you know, 
the report is is the deal, right? Which you know the court sort of said, well, the report here is really just a recommendation to the cabinet, and cabinet is the ultimate decision maker. But either you ensure that the the process in the National Energy Board takes uh, is capable of accommodating the interests of indigenous groups, or you know you provide another meaningful phase of negotiations after the fact, and and so. You, you can't on one hand say well this isn't this is just a recommendation process and on the other hand say well after it's done we can't change it who gets to decide what meaningful means i mean hopefully i think what the duty to consult is aiming for is that both parties to the negotiation will feel that they've reached a solution that they can sort of both agree to right, right? and that in some sense if you get there then you know, you, you, you've satisfied the objective of the duty of consultation in a way, right? Um, but if there's disagreement, then really it's the courts that are going to review it to see whether or not the process meets the standard that essentially it has to uh, meet the duties of the honor of the Crown. So, And so this, this happened at the Court of Appeal. Mm -hmm. uh, it might be helpful just, and especially since you're you're the author of the Constitutional Law Module, Law 201, mm -hmm. Sherry. Uh, just where does that sit in kind of the hierarchy of courts of Canada? I mean, appeal courts sit over top of the courts of first instance that decide the decisions initially. Um, but uh, over top of that is the Supreme Court of Canada. Right. So, you know, one of the possibilities that's obviously sort of being talked about is whether or not the federal government might decide to appeal the decision uh, and ask the Supreme Court of Canada to review it, uh, which they don't have to do. So the Supreme Court would have to decide whether the case raises an issue of national significance that it wants to hear, that it thinks it needs to address to resolve the issues. That's actually what I was going to ask, is the mm -hmm. federal court doesn't, or the federal government doesn't just get to do that. The, the Supreme Court has the autonomy to decide which cases it's mm -hmm. going to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the federal government could say, we'd like you to hear the Supreme mm -hmm. Court. The Supreme Court might say, sure. They might say, nah. Yeah, it's, tr it's true. They could say, no, we're not going to uh, review it. Right. Yeah. Uh, but the, uh, I think the other important thing here is what the Court of Appeal comes back with isn't like a stop everything. As you've said, it's not a tear it all up, burn it all down. It's this is what you have to do to remedy the situation and then move forward. And it remains procedural, right, in many respects. So the, the Court of Appeal can't say anything about what level of accommodation is required uh, in order to meet the, the concerns of the Indigenous groups. All it can say is, look, this process that you've created, um, you know, w was flawed and didn't, um, didn't provide an opportunity for meaningful dialogue. So in other words, you know, from the outset, we can tell from this process that there wasn't any possibility of real accommodation. But once you create a process or you, you put into place a process that allows for that, then it's really not up to the court to decide, um, well, this is meaningful accommodation or not, right? There's no there's no real um, ability for the court to judge that. And again, the courts have been very clear that they're not going to uh, make, you know, they're, they're, it, that, that this isn't a veto on either side, right? 
Um, part of the problem here, though, is that you have entrenched uh, interests on both sides that mm-hmm. have come out on the record saying that they would, that, you know, so the federal government basically said this pipeline will be built. Uh, and some of the um, First Nations that are opposing it have said, you know, this pipeline will never be built. So it's hard to find the common ground there for me, for, you know, for mm-hmm. good faith negotiation, if you will, um, when both sides are on the record as saying, you know, there's only one real outcome that we're going to be satisfied with. Right. And this came up, I think, in the past. We were talking about BC and their right to impose environmental standards in the province versus the federal government's right to say the pipeline will be built. Mm -hmm. To a point you have to sort of assume good faith that nobody's kind of just inventing pretext to keep things from happening, but everyone's Mm -hmm. actually invested in a functioning process. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, this seems like that's happening, I guess, from a... From my remove, it seems like all parties involved are sincerely working towards something. I think it was, yeah, I mean, I think certainly, um, you know, like I say, it was a very complex and involved process. And a lot of what the court does in its review is to review a whole series of possible deficiencies or challenges to the process. And it dismisses quite a number of them, Mm -hmm. right? So there are, although it does identify these you know, what turned out to be fatal flaws for the approval at this point, on balance, there was a lot of stuff that was done um, well, right. at least according to the court. So it's really, you know, how dramatic it is, and, you know, that depends a little bit on what happens moving forward. How entrenched are the parties? Uh, you know, is the government able to go back and sort of ask the NEB to revisit some of this? What does that process look like? I mean, from the original perspective, uh, one of the parties, of course, was the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which was, you know, it's a commercial enterprise. Right. Some of the response here is about how complex, how lengthy, and Mm -hmm. how uncertain these processes are from the perspective of private companies, right, and their investors. So at some point, it can even though you could theoretically get to an agreed outcome, the uncertainty and, you know, timeliness and all this, you know, those aspects of the process can essentially be too too risky for private companies. And in some ways that it helps to explain why the federal government in this case has not just said they're behind it in terms of regulatory jurisdiction, but they've gone as far as actually purchasing the pipeline. Right, right, which has been kind of another thing in the headlines is yeah. just sort of a, oh boy, <laughs> wow, they really, uh, pig in a poke is the expression I've heard. Um, they really sort of purchased something without really considering the ramifications of the purchase. From the, I mean, from the consultation perspective, it actually makes things easier uh, because one of the, the problems that the court identified was, again, this reluctance by the federal government to impose conditions in addition to what was in the, the NEB report. Uh, on a private uh, company. As Sherry mentioned, there's a lot of valid reasons for that. If you have investors who are um, who are being told, you know, your investment is secure because we're going through this regulatory process, they may not be very happy when you end up imposing other conditions after they've gone through this lengthy, complex process. In a way, that problem gets removed now that the federal government is the owner um, because obviously the federal government could just tell itself to do whatever it wants, uh, or at least you would think it could. Um, and so, you know, basically at this point, it's a matter of, you know, where those concerns are identified. Um, you know, of course you can impose other conditions. 
you're the one doing it. So you can make yourself do um, all the things that you think will need will be necessary to accommodate. And again, I think looking at past jurisprudence that if the process is sound, I, I don't think courts. I think courts would be very reluctant to interfere with the outcome, with 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 the substantive outcome of that consultation process and accommodation process, unless it's obvious that they haven't taken it seriously. Um, you know, but certainly the the process has to be, uh, as the court put it, sort of demonstrably um, uh, able to show that it's meaningful and that it's a two way conversation. So we we've talked about duty to consult fairly substantially, but again, it's a big decision. Is there mm-hmm. other are there other subjects being handled in? And I, I knowing that we haven't had time to mm-hmm. read the entire mm-hmm. thing and really unpack it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it only came out a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. It is huge, and it's the beginning of the school year. But are there other things in there that kind of need to be unpacked a little in terms of where the decision's coming from? One of the things that I think sort of got missed because the, the main focus has mm-hmm. been on the duty to consult is that the court also found that by not considering. Um, the Species at Risk Act. Uh, well, let me back up a little bit. The court, or sorry, the, the the National Energy Board decided that the impact on the marine environment once the tankers had left the terminal wasn't really part of its purview. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem is you have these. Um, I think they're called southern resident killer whales that mm-hmm. are uh, species at risk in the Strait of Georgia and in uh, Salish Sea. And so. Um, there's now another court challenge, actually, that's just been launched by environmental groups uh, saying that the government hasn't been acting according to the Species at Risk Act by not designating them as, as endangered and not or as a threatened species. I apologize, environmental law isn't really my area. But I, I think that's the gist of the, of the lawsuit. And so this is going to complicate matters as well because one of the things the court found in addition to the lack of duty to consult is that that stuff should have been taken into consideration by the National Energy Board. Even though it's kind of a post-pipeline thing that happens with the ships. Yeah, yeah so it's um, it, it's this kind of complicated reading of the requirements under the NEB's own act, which sort of triggers a need to look at the Environmental Protection Act, and then there's standards in that act that kind of fit back into the standards that the... Uh, board should be applying. So, you know, it's looking for, uh, what is I th- the standard, I think, is it has to be sort of in the public uh, interest. Interesting, yeah. Um, uh, it's, on, it's its own sort of legislative criteria. And then part of that is to look at the environmental assessment. And so it, it's one of these sort of complicated tiered things where the board thought that its jurisdiction was more limited than it was in terms of considering these sort of follow-through effects in terms of environmental impacts right. and, and things that it essentially didn't have jurisdiction to regulate over itself. And uh, so the court here seems to be saying, well, even if you can't regulate over it, you should still be talking about the impacts and whether there are any mitigation measures that could be taken within your own project to address those environmental effects. And so that's part of what was going on with the tanker traffic and and uh, the board's failure to make mitigation measures and to, to have recommendations about that part of the project. So this is captured partly in the Court of Appeal decision, but mm. you were saying, Hugo, there's even a separate... There, it's, just oh, yeah. been, it's just been brought, yeah, by okay. um, the World Wildlife Fund and um, other environmental groups. Well, I um, think if you're, but you're talking about the Species at Risk Act. Yeah. 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 So that's actually even a separate thing. That's right. It's sort of a triple layer of legislation. Compared with this, uh, because there's a whole section of this federal court 
of appeal decision that actually really is only about this failure to That's address right, yeah. marine tanker traffic uh, and the environmental consequences and that in fact that the court found that that in itself made the board's report sufficiently deficient that cabinet couldn't rely on it and so even without the aboriginal consultation issues it would have had to send the decision back um because of that so that that's so that actually you know you can see there why it's such a complex decision pipelines are complicated (laughs) pipelines are hard to build they're very complicated wow yeah Yeah. Uh, is there anything else kind of in the decision that's sort of been overshadowed by not only duty to consult but also the environmental measures well, I mean, this relates to duty to consult, and again, I'm sort of cautiously optimistic about the decision. I think we'll have to see if it gets appealed. I don't think they've been quite clear on whether they're going to do that yet uh, and what the outcome is going to be. But I think, you know, taking a step back from the pipeline issue, I do think this is a victory for First Nations in terms of the at least the procedural aspects of the duty to consult. Um, and I think, you know, for, for all First Nations, whether they're for or against the pipeline, because I think that's also important to note is that there are many yeah. First Nations who are in favor of the pipeline, pipeline and, and actually want to own it. Um, but no matter what side of the issue you're on, I think ultimately this is a good decision for First Nations in that it provides uh, a, a good standard for meaningful duty to consult. Again, at this point <clears throat> and how it develops, you know, it's, it's hard to know. But, I mean, we're in a precedent-based system and the Federal Court of Appeal is a only it's second It's a high-level court. court, especially for federal bodies and federal mm-hmm. decision-makers. So where this, it's, this yeah. radiates in a very significant way. Yeah, it does, and I think the media attention has has echo has sort of shown that as well, um, you know. But it, of course, it wouldn't be the first time that the Supreme Court disagreed with the Federal Court of Appeal either if it did get appealed. Uh, so you know, it could be that this might all get reversed if if that happens. I'm not sure, um, but we'll, we'll we'll just have to see. I mean, this is an ongoing sort of situation. Yeah. Thank you both very much. Thanks, Thank Pat. Thanks to Hugo Chaquette, the developer and instructor of our Aboriginal Law Course and Sherry Metcalf, the developer and instructor of our Constitutional Law Module in Law 201701, Introduction to Canadian Law. If you're interested in Aboriginal law, the history of Indigenous rights in Canada, and how things like the resource industry are directly linked to them, you should look into Law 202702, Aboriginal Law, at takelaw.ca. And for a 10,000-foot view of the Canadian Constitution and our court system, Law 201701, Introduction to Canadian Law, is a great place to start. We also offer Law 205705, Public and Constitutional Law, which is a full-focused, deep dive into the bedrock of Canadian law. Fundamentals of Canadian Law is recorded at Queen's University, situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Our theme music is by Megan Hamilton, who's also a staff member here at Queen's Law. You can find out more about her music at meganhamiltonmusic.wordpress.com. Original illustrations for each podcast are created by Valerie Desrochers. You can see them at takelaw.ca and visit Valerie's portfolio at vdesrochers.com. <laughs>